building up godly men for a better tomorrow. This is On the Edge with Ken Harrison, where we inspire men of integrity to put faith into action together. And now, here's today's show. Hey, uh, Governor Haslam, thanks so much for uh, thanks for coming on. It's, it's going to be a great conversation we're about to have. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I look forward to it. So two-term governor of Tennessee, and you really helped to change that state. I mean, Tennessee has become one of the most godly governed states, if not the most godly governed state in America. I mean, the, the supermajority that you put together there, you just had a phenomenal effect on the state of Tennessee. And that's pretty, uh, it's pretty good stuff for a guy who was heading for seminary to be a pastor. <laughs> well, uh, like, as you know, there's, it's never the story of uh, one person. It's always usually a lot of different people that, uh, that are used to make change happen. So how did that happen? I mean, how did you go from seminary to becoming the CEO of, of, of one of the divisions of Saks to becoming the mayor of Knoxville, the governor of Tennessee? I mean, how does that, I know a lot of guys listen to this podcast and they go, how do I, how do I make something of my life? And, the, and they're really curious about the journeys that some guys have taken. Yeah. So in my case, actually, uh, uh, became a Christian in high school through the ministry of young life. And the guy that would kind of been my mentor at the time had, uh, graduated from high school, came back and taught at our high, the high school where I was for two years and then went to seminary. And so, you know, a lot of times when you're young and you see somebody with a path, you go, well, that, that path looks great. I think I'll do that. So I went to college thinking I would go teach for two years and then go to seminary. And, uh, when I got out, decided, um, you know, if, if going to be a pastor, then maybe being in the business world for a little bit um, would be great exposure to a different world just to better prepare you to uh, to relate to people who are in your church. So I went into business for a couple of years and really in the process kind of came to the conclusion that I really wasn't called to be a pastor. Um, loved the church, really involved in the church, but decided that wasn't it. Stayed in business for 20 years. Um, liked it, loved growing business, found that really interesting. But some folks approached me about running for mayor of Knoxville, and I kind of laughed, and you got the wrong guy. Uh, <laughs> I've been meeting every Friday morning with with four other guys for 20-plus years talking about everything in life. And they said, hey, we think you ought to think about it, uh, and, you, and let's all pray about that. And my wife said the same thing, which surprised me even more. I thought she would say, no, run, run for the hills. We're not going into politics. Uh, and so the more I thought, prayed about, the more it felt obvious that was the right thing for me. So ran, uh, and loved it, just loved being a mayor and ran again in 2007, reelected. And then 2010 ran for governor and, uh, won and reelected in 14. And I'll just say this kind of a summary. God can use a lot of different things to create change. Um, but a role in the public square and in, uh, is it, is is one of those ways we can leverage what we do to see big things happen. You know, I think one of the mentalities we have in the church that is a problem is that we think that the pastors are the varsity and everybody else is the JV. Like if you really want to be close to God, you have to be a pastor. And guys like you repeatedly show that the ones who are really changing the world are the ones who who take risk and go out there and do things that maybe don't seem so secure or natural to us. I think that's right. I mean, I, I mean, I do think being a pastor is a really high calling, and uh, but it doesn't mean that the, the folks that are in the congregation or the JV, as you said. Um, but I, 
you know, I said, God can use a lot of different things. And, you know, for, for, for his reason, he pulled me into the public office. But I, like I said, one of my conclusions out of that is for all of us. For those, you probably have a lot of listeners that go, well, I'm never going to run for office. This, so I, this isn't me. But one of my challenges to all of us is we should be involved in the public square. Um, whether that's just as an informed voter or somebody helping other people get elected or uh, maybe it's running for office yourself. But who we elect really matters even more than I thought when I ran the first time. Yeah, it's kind of funny, actually. I mean, a famous pastor, I won't bring up his name, but he's encouraged people not to be in politics for 40 years, saying Christians shouldn't be in politics and this and that. And then when they came to shut his church down forcibly through COVID, uh, he needed a bunch of coppers to stand there and stand up for him and keep them from closing his church down. And I just sort of wonder, does he wish he hadn't said that for 40 years? Because we sure could have used people in the public square, especially in California, when they were, you know, trying to act like totalitarians. Yeah, like, like I said, like I, said it, it, listen, I think a lot of people say look, politics is just too messy. You know, it's too, uh, the answers are too ambiguous. The whole thing just feels messy and dirty, and I don't want to be a part of it. But, uh, you know, it was Martin Luther actually said, hey, send your very best into, into, into politics, you know, uh, because they're dealing with the ambiguity you have to deal with requires uh, great discernment. And so... Um, again, listen, God calls a lot of people to different places. For me, I, I'm, I would say I'm just really grateful uh, that he decided to use me in this way. Well, I mean, you had big shoes. to. I mean, you think about the guys that have come from Tennessee. I mean, Andrew Jackson, <laughs> who on his deathbed, when they asked him, you know, had he regretted anything in politics and they were expecting some sort of gracious answer, he said, yeah, I wish I would have hung, hung Henry Clay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He says, I wish I'd hung Clay and shot Calhoun. Cal- so, who was his vice president. Right, exactly. So it's, uh, it's he had a double barrel uh, lack of regret there at the end. I, I've always, I mean, he's always been a hero of mine. I have one thing I don't like about him, which was when he was a first term congressman, he actually had the nerve to stand up and re- and rebuke uh, President Washington, which is like, dude, how do you, how, how does anybody right. actually, how does a young man actually think he can take on General Washington, but that guy had some some spine. Well, he did. I mean, he, not only that, but he, he uh, not too far from where I was earlier today in in uh, downtown Nashville, got in a duel with two different people. So he's uh, uh, gumption was not his issue. No, no. And you know, you talk, you talk about messy. You know, Burr shooting uh, and uh, Alexander Hamilton. Right. Guys getting in fistfights in the day. I don't know when Christians started thinking that somehow. Like, like politics nowadays are nowhere near as rough as they were 150 years ago. Certainly, no one's going to get shot. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> true. But I think that what has changed is there's a level of cynicism that's come in through social media. And, uh, and folks who feel like because it feels anonymous, they say things that they would never say uh, in a different setting. And I, I don't think that's been for good that that has happened. Yeah, and I want to I want to get to your book in a minute, but I do want to talk about you know, you know to me I, I knew uh, I had a friend of mine who was the mayor of Downey, California, and he would talk about people running up to him and screaming in his face in the grocery store, and people um, calling his wife horrible names because he voted some way on a road construction bill. And I, I think you know I'm always curious how you guys handle because you're you're you you're a very wealthy man. Um, one of the wealthiest men has ever served as governor. You didn't have to put up with all that stuff. And, and how did you handle the criticism of 
in Knoxville, I'm sure it was much more personal. It's it's people in the community. As governor, maybe a little less personal. It's people from around, but probably a little bit more intense as well. How do you, as a strong Christian man who's independently wealthy, deal with people who normally could never even access you, feeling like they, they could just rake you over the coals? You know, in, in one way, I, I think it's... Uh, Listen, there's a lot of people that are just totally irrational and come up to you and, you know, it doesn't it doesn't really matter if you have an answer. Their their, their anger is going to supersede any of that uh, and they just want to yell. Uh, but other folks just want a chance to have input. And I, I'll say this, you know, it, it's easy for all of us to feel like, oh, we're being treated unjustly. Um, you know, we follow a God who was treated incredibly unjustly and the humility that came that that is shown there, I think is part of what we're called to be. And so like my pastor, like a pastor, our former pastor of mine said, uh, said, I said, how do you take it when people, you know, send you nasty emails after a sermon? He goes, I just always remember, you know, but they don't know the half of it. I'm, I know I'm a sinful person and these folks that are attacking me, like you should know how bad I really am. That's good. Yeah, I remember thinking, I heard uh, Michael Reagan telling the story about his dad, Ronald Reagan, when they were getting into the limo and there's a crowd that ran up screaming at him and they shut the limo doors and they were flipping them off and everything. And Ronald turned to Michael and said, son, I think they're starting to get it. And <laughs> I thought, you know, I won't be ready for politics until I can respond like that. Right. But I will say it's really hard to get there. It's, uh, you know, particularly when you're first doing it, it's, you know, somebody you're opponent in a campaign runs a nasty commercial about you. Somebody said that that's hard, but again, there's, there, there's things to be learned in, in, in every experience. Tell me about your book and why, why'd you write? I mean, you, 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 you were governor up until two years ago and you've already written this, uh, this book, which I had a chance to read on the plane yesterday. And, um, I really love your call to get involved in the public square. Yeah. The, the book is called faithful prep, uh, Faithful Presence, The Promise and Peril of Faith in the Public Square. And really, really what I'm, listen, almost everybody, if you could talk to anybody on the political spectrum today, anywhere, far left or far right, they'd say, I'm kind of frustrated and exhausted about the whole thing. I mean, that's that would be the one thing you could get people to agree agree on. And the other would be, I don't really see a way out of where we are right now. Uh, and one of the things I say is, what would it look like if Christians came into the public arena really with a faithful presence to say, what would it look like to act like act the way Jesus asks, asks us to act? And this is kind of my attempt to talk about what that would look like. And, you know, the thing I remind believers who are involved in, in the public square is, uh, or actually just in, any of us, all of us are kind of worried about the way we see the world going. You know, we look at the culture and feel like it's degrading and it's headed in the wrong direction. And all of us are concerned about that. It's Jesus that says, hey, it, you're supposed to be the salt of the earth. And if the meat goes bad, it's not the meat's fault. It's the salt's fault. We're, we're the ones that are supposed to keep the salt from going bad. So what I'm asking us to do is to step back and start with ourselves instead of pointing at the other side, being mad at the other side, being frustrated. Start with ourselves and say, what would it look like if we truly were salt that kept the meat from going bad? You know, one of the things I talk about all the time is that Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not blessed are the peacekeepers. You know, peacekeepers are the people who sit around and say, can't we all just get along? Well, actually, no, we can't because some people are evil. And, um, and when I say evil, I mean evil. I don't mean people who have different political opinions. I mean, there are people who are actually 
evil. And um, I was just meeting with somebody who um, was high up in the government in Nigeria talking about how HBO and um, Netflix just spent millions and millions of dollars to flood their country with homosexual movies. That, that it's a very uh, moral place, Nigeria. Half of it is very Christian and half it's very Muslim. But however you slice it, it it's at least not a perverse place. So HBO and, and Netflix, I, I can't see the business reason flooding them with homosexual movies is to spend the money to make that available to everybody. That's evil. So we have to remember that peacekeeping is sometimes confrontational. Andrew Jackson was a peacekeeper. <laughs> um, peacemakers are people who just want to go along. Let's let's all just uh, let's just go along with the flow. We don't want to cause any confrontation. And I think one of the things that Christians need to realize one of the reasons why a lot of people want to keep us out of the public square is they think that somehow being a Christian is not being confrontational. Well, that, that's not what my Jesus was like, right? The Jesus I read in the Bible is extremely confrontational. He was just confrontational in love and with the truth, not with his opinions about things or um, politics. And that's a, a tough um, thing for people. You have to be very spiritually mature to understand how to confront in a godly way, but be intolerant of evil. No, I mean, like I said, yeah, Jesus is obviously, uh, he he confronts things that he's seen as evil all the time and takes them on head on. But I, I do think it's worth noting, he always starts with us. The, he always starts with people that are seen as people of faith. I mean, when, uh, you know, when the woman is dragged before him in adultery, he, you know, not, he eventually tells her, go and sin no more. But he starts and says, all right, you know, who's, who's without sin cast the first stone? It's interesting. It says that the, it was the oldest among them that dropped their stones and walked away. It was the oldest. Realized, like, I mean, you're probably, I, I don't, you're a little younger than me. It looks like, but uh, you know, as we get older, we realize that there's, there's a lot in my life I need to look at. So, I don't. Yeah, I mean, Jesus talks a lot about uh, about um, confronting uh, confronting evil, but it is really important what you just said. We're supposed to speak the truth with love, both of those things, and. I, I don't know about you, but I know a lot of people who are, are great at speaking truth. But they, they don't feel like, you know, that, that, they say, I'm a truth teller. That's what I am. I, 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 just, I go up and tell it like it is, and they take a lot of great pride in that. But nobody feels very loved around them. And there are a lot of people that are very loving, but they, they, don't, they can't stand for anything in terms of when it comes to truth. So I think you put your finger out. That's our challenge. How do we speak truth with love? Yeah, and even as I say that, I have to remember – Jesus was perfect and he knew the hearts of all men and right. I don't. Right. So I need to be well, very well, careful when well confronting said. somebody. Very, very well said. I think that's part of why he calls us to humility in the way that he does. So one of the things you talk about in your book, um, which I find really interesting because, you know, groupthink is a big problem in our country today on every side, including the church. And one of the things that groupthink has done is create cliches that everyone just accepts as true. And they're not true. Lots of Christians believe that the Bible says lots of stuff it doesn't say. And one of the things that we hear all the time is you can't legislate morality. You can't legislate morality. And you say that we can, in fact, that we need to. How do you do that? How do you legislate morality? I, I, I by the premise, we, we do legislate morality. We, we tell people they can't murder, they can't steal. So, I mean, we, and, and even people that say there's no such thing as universal, as, as truth that's true for everybody, would agree. Oh yeah, murder's bad, and steal, taking what belongs to other people are, are bad. So, I, I I don't I don't buy the whole premise that I mean that's what you know 
government is set up so that um, people can um, hopefully, like I said, it's a founder uh, said, you know, pursue uh, liberty and happiness. And um, that that's that's what our that's what our purpose is. And at times that means saying to someone, no, you cannot do that. You cannot. Like I said, you can't take other people's properties. You can't kill someone else. But don't you think that the gray area comes in when, you, you know, murder, stealing, you're hurting somebody else directly in an obvious way. The morality portion comes like I've, I've often said, if I became king, uh, which no one's going to make me king. But if I was king, the first thing I would do is outlaw um, pornography. And, and I would I would outlaw it and I would actually go after and kill the people overseas who were who are getting pornography in our nation. I feel that strongly about what pornography is doing to the family and to the church. Um, but people would say, well, pornography, that that's a victimless crime. I mean, nobody suffers from pornography. No, I would offer I would argue definitively that's not true. But the problem we get into with people, they're OK with legislating morality that directly, obviously affects somebody like walking up and shooting somebody in, in the chest. But pornography, which I would argue damages vastly more people than that, many people would say it's, it's, it's your personal choice. It doesn't really hurt anybody. Well, I think, you know, it's interesting to me, and I, and I you know, agree with a lot of what you said. You know, a year or two ago when the whole world, when everybody was caught up in the Me Too movement of, in many cases, appropriately, you know, condemning uh, men for treating women in the wrong way. But I, I'm willing to bet that in a lot of those cases, you had people that were uh, very uh, uh, addicted to pornography, and that was causing a lot of the things they do. So you say it's a victimless crime, but just what kind of acts is it inspiring? And, and I'm betting if you trace that back, you're going to you're going to find that um, a lot of the things that, again, primarily men treating women uh uh, inappropriately or, or just dead wrong uh, when it comes to sexual things. Uh, you know, lo- a lot of those ideas came from pornography. Yeah, actually, when I was on the LAPD, we arrested the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez, um, who was one of the most horrific serial killers ever. And um, I'm not going to say what he did on here, but if you Google him, he is hor- He is the boogeyman you were afraid of when you were a kid. Got started because of pornography. And actually, the studies they've shown, almost every serial killer in the history of America, pornography. So uh, we can show data that showed that pornography is horrific. And I know some guys are addicted to it. I know some guys are listening to this are addicted to it. And you're thinking, well, yeah, I really need to try to stop. You can't try to stop. You've got to draw closer to Jesus. you you got to repent. First um, John 1.9, he will forgive you of all of your sins if you repent. But um the, the the addiction of the flesh, the demons and the familiar spirits that attach to you through that stuff, um, trying hard to be a better person never works. Um, abandoning yourself to Christ always works. And so what you need to do is not try, not beat yourself up, not feel bad, because Satan will use that to, to get you down the wrong road. But instead, repent of your sins to Jesus. Tell him you need help. Get yourself in scripture. What happens is you start to train, change from the inside out. And pornography actually becomes repulsive to you as you grow in Christ. Not something you have to try not to do, but something that makes you want to throw up at the idea of it. Today's episode is brought to you through the generosity of Waterstone. 
For nearly 40 years, Waterstone has assisted givers in supporting their favorite charities, like Promise Keepers, by crafting customized innovative giving solutions. Waterstone gift strategists stand ready to create your personalized charitable plan, utilizing business interests, real estate, appreciated assets, charitable trusts, giving funds, and more. These donor-specific giving strategies allow givers to bypass capital gains taxes, receive a fair market value charitable deduction, and have tax-free growth for years to come. Prioritize income, minimize taxes, and optimize your giving with Waterstone. Find out how to give and receive the most from your assets by visiting www.waterstone.org. And now, back to today's show. Bill, you talk about how Christians often take their political views and then try to jam the Bible into their political views rather than let the Bible be the thing that explains their truth to them. And what does that mean, especially in an age where even I saw that Russell Moore uh, endorsed your book and Russell Moore, of course, is on the outs with all the Trump supporters. You know, so even within the uh, Republican Party, we see people who are violently opposed to each other. Um, I think because of that exact concept you're talking about, they they they're violently opposed to each other because they think they have a biblical truth when really what they have is a political opinion and then they've accumulated verses to support their political opinion. Well, I think that's right. I mean, you know, I can't say it any better than what you just said. One of the things I think that's happened to us as believers is we, we have a theology of a lot of things. We have a theology of marriage, right? And you've been to, if you're married, you've probably been to a multitude of, you know, classes and retreats and things to focus on marriage and same thing on, on raising children and, if you're in high school, there's you know lots of high school ministries uh, talking about here's what it looks like to walk with Jesus in high school. What we really haven't done a good job of saying is, what does it look like to walk in a way that honors Christ in the public arena? Well, not not so much like what's our position on you know marriage or abortion, et cetera, but what's it look like uh, to to walk in that way? And we ha- we haven't had those conversations. I think because of that. We've all we've started to act like just like the rest of the world. And one of the things that maybe disappointed me the most when I was in office was that um, it felt like people of faith, when they engaged, um, engaged, like so well as mayor or governor, acted just the same way as everyone else did. And if there's anything that I know we're supposed to be, it's that we're supposed to be different than the rest of the world. Is that harder, you know, dealing with a state like Tennessee that's actually so conservative and so Christian compared to most did you find that maybe Christians were even on worse behavior because they felt like they were in the majority? You you, you have no idea how true what you just said is. Uh, I, that's it, I think sometimes when we're in the majority of things, we think we're right and everybody around me thinks just the way I do. So I'm I know I'm right. So I'm going to come with the deep conviction of being 100 percent, you know, in the uh, being 100 percent correct on this. And. All, all of us know, you know, part of being a, a follower of Christ is realizing that we're fallen, broken people. It's kind of fundamental, the whole Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we don't, when, when again, like I said, when we're surrounded by everybody that says, yeah, we're right, thinks like we do, think like we do, it sometimes uh, takes us away from that sense of, okay, am, am I really clear that this is of God or is this just what I want to be true politically? Boy, that's that's profound. Talking to Governor Bill Haslam, governor of Tennessee, until 
couple of years ago when he got term limited out or he probably would have been elected uh, king of Tennessee over there. You were so popular. But, you know, you said something that I thought was pretty convicting to me in your book, um, which is that sometimes we're more worried about losing our country than we are about losing our God. And man, that that really hit me because I do. I mourn the state of our country. I, I can't even watch TV. I mean, if I if I watch TV, it's football or old Seinfeld reruns because <laughs> anything that's modern of today is just so horrifying to me. I can't handle it. And I find I'm in a state of mourning. But I ask myself, am I more in the state of mourning over the souls of people and the church or am I more in a state of mourning over the state of the country? And I, I think a lot of times I'm actually heartbroken for what's happening to America and boy, so your statement really nailed me in your book. Well, I was, you know, you know, when you when you write or when you preach a sermon, you, you write to yourself, right? So yeah, right. I, I find myself that same way. I mean, I look at what's happening in the country, I get upset. I don't, I'm not nearly as, like, as you said, concerned with the souls of the people around me. Um, so again, I'm to, to me, it's uh, you write a book to yourself as much as to anyone else. Yeah, man, I'm telling you. I'm, I'm sitting there writing my third book right now. It's called uh, A Courageous Faith in a Cowardly World. You know, convicting myself as I delve into scripture and delve into the writings of all these great old writers. And, you know, I'm a big fan of reading Martin Lloyd-Jones or, uh, you know, Andrew Murray. And you won't, uh, go wrong. you won't go wrong there. No. But, boy, those old those old boys, you know, they had to, a printing press, you know. So yeah. <laughs> uh, every word had to be valuable. You know, you don't have a bunch of fluffy stories when you read Andrew Murray. You have just statement after statement. I, I read like four pages and I'm just underlining everything. And then I have to take a break because it's taken me an hour because of the truth coming at you. you, know, you know? That, you're really true. Of course, Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary on the uh, Sermon on the Mount is big enough for all of us to uh, uh, to be six inches taller. So <laughs> but he might have just been smart enough. He had, a, he had that much material. <laughs> and I got to tell you, man, honestly, sometimes I read those those guys and I'm like, why am I writing a book? Like, <laughs> why is it, I should be doing is promoting their books because I, I mean, uh, I think that that's that's probably about as uh, that's when you know you're growing in crisis. <laughs> like, oh man, like what I have is dribble compared to these guys. Man, that's so true. I actually I teach a story a lot about Moses, and I talk about how Moses knew he had a huge calling on his life. And at 40 years old, he goes out and says, I'm, I'm ready to make my calling happen. I'm sick and tired of waiting on God. I mean, this is my interpretation of scripture as I read it. So he goes out and he beats a guy to death. And Moses, man, he would have been the best military training, the best hand-to-hand -hand combat. So when he beat that guy to death, he knew exactly what he was doing, yeah. that, that guard. And then he goes out the next day, and I think he's ready for the, the Israelites to say, oh, our, our king, you're going to lead us out of slavery. And Moses, he's got his calling right. He's just got the timing wrong. And God is not with him yet. And he ends up spending the next 40 years wandering around in the desert. And I can just imagine when Moses was 79 years old, you know, telling his son, who's now 35, you know, I used to be a big deal in Egypt. And the son's going, Dad, you smelled like sheep my whole life. You know, you're a lowly shepherd. I, I'm having a hard time believing, you know, it's that old statement, the older I get, the better I was. Then, you know, at 80 years old, when God calls him in front of that burning bush, and goes on for two chapters, telling Moses that he's now going to do through Moses exactly what the 40-year-old Moses wanted. Moses' response is, pick somebody else. Ah, now God can use him. You know, man, I, we have too many Christian leaders who impress themselves that are glad, are really glad for God that they're on his team. 
And I think what we need is a whole lot more humble men and women who are really, really glad that they get to be on God's team. Well, I think, in, you know, scripture's really clear um, about uh, uh, about the way that God loves humility and hates pride. You know, it's both James and Peter say the exact same thing, and they're not exactly. clear. They For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Hmm. And. Amen. You know, you start. I started counting up the number of references to humility and to uh, how much God hates pride in Scripture, and you're up in the the hundreds uh, on, on both of those. Yeah, the number three most given command in Scripture is fear the Lord. It's really hard to fear the Lord when you're impressed with yourself. Right. Well said. So, what are you doing now? So you you uh, you left the governorship. You wrote a book. Now what? You know, it's some a lot of things that you know we cared about while I was office still care about and still involved in. Um, so, serving on several boards, have gone back into um, business in, in a in a small way, not not operating, but in some with some investments. Um, and then catching up, we actually have ten grandchildren, so uh, we're catching up on uh, on time missed with them uh, while we were uh, in office and busier than we would have liked to have been. Has it been hard? I mean. Uh... 16 years in office. I'm sure when you were mayor of Knoxville, you had the ability to still be in business, but I would think as the governor of Tennessee, that would have been harder. Is it, is it, you know, 16 years, is it hard to step back into business? Yeah, it's kind of funny. It's part of, I mean, it's a little hard just to step back into real life, right? I mean, for particularly while you're governor, you have people driving you around, you live in a governor's mansion behind a fence and a big house that there's guards and, and all that. Um, but it's kind of, so it, I remember, you know, when you have protection with you all the time, you have troopers with you all the time. And uh, I remember the first Saturday night we were out of office and my wife and I went downtown to a restaurant and I'm walking downtown thinking, somebody's going to get me. Oh, you know, and then I realized like nobody cares. You know? right. Isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it is, I, you know, it's funny. I, I love being in office. It's a great way to serve. And I, I said, it's the honor. It sounds corny, but truly is the honor of a lifetime to get to do it. But there's something nice about being back in business. You know, in politics, so much of it is driven by perception. You know, I could probably ask people like, you know, while I'm in office, I probably serve with because of rotating terms and I'll probably 80 different people who are governors in various states. And I can ask people like, who do you think the best governors were? And typically it's the ones who had national names or had worked hard on their perception. But in reality, the, the people who did the best jobs for their state weren't didn't get that kind of a national attention. They were just out there doing their job. And so what I say about, the, I make that point, politics can be a lot about perception. The nice thing about business is it's it's kind of black and white. You have your sales and your expenses and your margins and your profit, and it, it kind of is what it is. Uh, and it doesn't really matter how much you try to give somebody the uh, the perception that you're doing great. You either are or you're not. Man, it always comes down to the best salesman, you know? <laughs> I told my kids all the time, you know, the guys with all the degrees work for the guys with personality. <laughs> That's right. You know, and it's the same in politics. It's the guy who knows how to give the perception to sell himself, herself, that uh, becomes the big star. And you have all these other people who do incredible jobs, but they're not salesmen. No one knows about all the stuff that they did. Yeah. The, well, is one of my children tried to convince me one time after uh, maybe a not so stellar uh, report card uh, from college. Said, Dad, it's not the grades you make. It's the hands you shake. <laughs> well, let's do both. Let's, let's get, you know, let's shake the hands and make good grades. There you go. I remember saying to my daughter and she was at Liberty, she had to get a three, five 
GPA and no, a three, three, her mom wanted to have it have three, five. I said, let's make it three, three, her first term freshman at Liberty. She calls me dad. We have a problem. What's, oh, what's our problem? Our problem is I'm only going to get a two, nine GPA. And I said, well, then our problem is you're going to be going to Arapahoe community college yeah. Uh, yeah. next term. And she <laughs> said, but dad, I, I can't get a three, three and God really wants me to be at Liberty. And I said, well, then God's going to be really disappointed in your grades. And uh, I said, what you need to do is go to each one of your professors and ask them, what is my grade and what can it be? And what do I need to do to get there? And she did. And she ended up, that was three weeks before the end of the term. She ended up with a three, eight. So, you know, you, you can't compromise with your kids, man. Uh, yeah, it, it's, <laughs> that's a great story. Well, I, you know, that, that's a, it's like when people used to run, say, I think God wants me to be in this a senator or governor or whatever. I say, well, the, the call, you, you have to decide if you're called to run and then the election will call to decide if you're called to serve in that way. Yeah, I mean, I got to tell you, you know, at Leading Promise Keepers, I, I've probably had 200 people tell me that God's called them to be a senator. God never calls you to do anything that assuages your ego, ever. God's call always results in humility and patience and a sweetness and a... Um, it's Satan who says, hurry up and you got to go. And it brings anxiety and it gets in your ambition and gets in your ego. And man, I remember some guys call, coming out to ask me to run for Senator, um, saying they wanted to finance the whole thing. And I remember the Lord's voice screaming in my ears. No, I did not call you to be in politics. And it seemed to make all kinds of logical choice. And, um, you know, then I went home and said to my wife, this is what happened. And this is what the Lord said. And she said, absolutely right. I don't want to, I don't want to be a Senator's wife. And as some people say, you know, I've heard God's audible voice uh, and it sounds a lot like my wife. I <laughs> <laughs> just want to thank you for the job you did in Tennessee. I, I wish I wish I lived in Tennessee because I tell you what, um, the people there, Tennessee and Texas, man, I don't know what it is about the people from Tennessee and Texas. There are some states where you live. California, you live in California. You're not really a California. I mean, I, as a guy who was born in California, lived there a lot of years. You're not really a California, but you are a Texan and you are a Tennessean. And there's something about those cultures. I read an article a few years ago that people are worried about people moving into Texas and changing the voting habits. And actually, they've done studies now for quite a bit of time and shown that people who move to Texas tend to become Texans. And yeah. whatever they were, they leave behind and they become Texans. The same is true of Tennessee. You've got people just barraging Nashville and they're becoming Tennesseans. Yeah, the my experience is just that people worry like we've had huge population influx in Tennessee and folks are worried about it. But my experience is it's actually it's not those folks who are leaving California and Illinois and New Jersey. They're leaving because uh, they don't want it to be like it is there. And so uh, kind of interestingly, my experience has been the people that move here from California tend to be our most conservative people. Yeah, hey, I got one quick last question for you. Was it hard becoming governor being from Knoxville? Was it hard not being from Nashville or Memphis? You know, it's a good question. One of the issues that you have when you're in office is everybody thinks where their area doesn't get the, enough love and attention. So Memphis has some historical challenges around uh, a low income pop population. Chattanooga is kind of down in the corner, feels like it's, you know, we treat it like it's part of Georgia. We have the upper northeast part of Tennessee uh, Bristol that's 
closer to Canada than it is to the other end of the state. <laughs> just feel like everybody else gets the, gets the love. Uh, I think it's but one of the great things about campaigning is you go out, you're there on the road, you meet enough people, you learn the things that matter to them. And once people realize that you understand what matters to them, then they let some of that go. Well, uh, okay, he's from Knoxville. He's just going to worry about Knoxville. And uh, I think I think once you show that you understand their issues, that they tend to let that go. So, did anybody from Chattanooga vote for you? Well, I think I got a few. Yeah. For those who don't know, Chattanooga and Knoxville have this. Like, if you go to Chattanooga, all they'll do is tell you how terrible Knoxville is and how yeah. you've got to got to be in Chattanooga. There, there's definitely <laughs> there's definitely some of that, but uh, like I said, you work really hard to get past that. <laughs> Well, thanks, man, for your time. I really appreciate you. You're really uh, enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate you reading the book and uh, telling your listeners about it. Yeah. Hey, one more time. Faithful Presence by Governor Bill Haslam. Great, great stuff. Says some things in there that need to be said that aren't being said very often. I think you'll find um, when you read the governor's book, some some really original thoughts that are definitely worth investing the time. And I read the whole book and it took me an hour and a half. So profound, underlined a lot of it. Thank you for the book. Thank you for your service. And I uh, appreciate you, man. Well, thanks so much. I enjoyed the visit and uh, hope, hope our paths cross again soon. All right, brother. Thanks for listening to On the Edge podcast with Ken Harrison. For a lot of you, this is our first time meeting, and I want to tell the men listening about an organization I'm the current chairman of, Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers is an organization founded by Coach Bill McCartney that's led men across the world to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Promise Keepers is calling men back to courageous and bold servant leadership. To learn more and get involved in the mission of Promise Keepers, visit promisekeepers.org. Follow on social media or download the Promise Keepers app on Apple Store or Google Play by searching Promise Keepers. Through the Promise Keepers app, you'll receive access to devotionals, Bible studies, and other great articles and video content, and a community to build friendships, lead your family, and become transformative leaders. See you next time for On the Edge with Ken Harrison. This podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app.